Jesus is speaking to a group of people. They are completely convinced. Completely convinced in what they see, what they believe, what they hear. I don't know about what you guys, if you're involved in your missional community group, if you're not, I encourage you to be involved in one. But part of our discussion this week was, is Jesus talking about us? Surely not. We are not these Pharisees, right? We cannot be these people. This, he is talking about other people. He is not talking about us. Welcome to the same perspective and difficulties of the people who were listening to these stories. It is believed that Jesus shared this parable two days before he died upon the cross, and in doing so would reveal some things again about himself, about God, humanity, from a divine perspective. The first thing is, is kind of an explanation of the parable that Pastor Justin read for us. The tension surrounding the person and work of Jesus has, has definitely come to a boiling point at this moment. The religious people, the Jews, have, are just tired of listening to this peasant carpenter man from Nazareth, a no-good, redneck, terrible place to be from. The Bible, even it was believed that said, um, nothing ever good comes from Nazareth. And so all of a sudden, you got this rabbi, this teacher, he's doing these miracles, he's doing these teachings, and whenever he gets around us church people, then he starts really speaking to us, I mean, in a hardcore poisonous, sharp-tongued sort of way. Um, Jesus has just now entered the temple in Luke. Remember, he rides on a donkey, and they're waving palm branches, singing Hosanna, and Pastor Justin will actually preach on that next week. He weeps over Jerusalem. He goes into the temple in, in the city, the most holies of holies, and what does he see? He pe- sees people in a market, like have made the temple place a marketplace, specifically where the Gentiles could gather. This is making this extremely hard for them to worship or to be involved in any sorts of worship. And what does Jesus do? He runs. I mean, he gets righteous anger, furious, and he goes ballistic terminator all up in the temple, running people all out because he is so mad. And they have turned what is supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. So this is just taking place. Um, And this conflict is taking place. Look in chapter 19 and verses 47 and 48. And he said he was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his word. So this is the text in context. Jesus is, is in the temple. He's preaching and teaching. He is in this most holies of places in Jewish history and custom. And he begins to do all of these things and begins to share this story. They begin to question Jesus on his authority. Like, where are you getting this authority? Because the thing is, is If Jesus says he's God at this moment, they kill him right then. Jesus ultimately died at the hands of Jews, believing um, and saying, and they accused him of blasphemy. He declared that he was God. And guess what? He was. He was. But that made a complete mockery 
of these Jewish leaders, and so they put him to death for it. So before he really gets into that sort of thing, they're questioning all this stuff, and they begin to ask him, trying to trick Jesus, but he refuses to tell them where his authority comes from. Ultimately, what does he do? Crazy Jesus tells a story, and this is the story that he tells us today. The story is today is that Jesus tells us of a man. This man is, again, a wealthy man. And this man has a plot of ground. And he goes to this plot of ground and very like a Jewish custom and customs of the time was for you to plant a vineyard. And so this man, he goes himself and he cultivates the ground. He creates upon it. He puts a vineyard on this plot of ground. And in doing so, after he's got the system all up and growing, everything's being fruitful, everything is functioning like a well-oiled machine, he goes back probably to where he really lives, which is probably a foreign land, a place far away from his farm. And in doing so, what does he do? Is he, again, he allows people to come and be tenant farmers. They rent the vineyards from him, and in return, then the landowner, because it's his, will get a percentage of the fruit available to him, and then the tenants, they get everything else. So this is the story that Jesus become, uh, begins to tell us. This is actually a very common thing then, and it's a very common thing that takes place now, I think of Larry and Kathy that are part of our church. They um, own a, a, a little over 100 acres in Allen County, and, and they have all this beautiful farmland. The great thing about it, because as a son-in-law, I don't have to ride a tractor every day, they rent out that land, and a percentage of that, that land and what it makes comes to them, all right? This is very, very common. Most of the farmland around our family farm is done that way. That's a that's a great thing if you hate farming, right? It's an awesome thing. And so this is taking place then, and it takes place now. Well, the farm continues to produce fruit and fruit and fruit. And so what does the landowner do? He, he has enough servants. He sends one of his most trusted servants to go get his grapes so that he can have some welches one day. And so he, he sends a servant. And upon that servant reaching the tenants, what happens? They refused to give him the fruit. And they beat him half to death. And they turn him away. Well, that servant goes back to the landowner. I don't know about you, but if I'm the landowner at this time, I'm thinking, we got a problem here. It's, it's time to, for some war. Like, I'm finding some new tenants here. But what does the landowner do? How would you like to be this guy? He sends another servant. And he sends that servant to those same tenants, and he says, hey guys, you know, here's the deal. You know, my master, he owns this land. It is his land. Technically, this is his fruit, but he's got a, a deal worked out with you. He should receive a, a portion of it, and then you get all of the rest of it is yours. But what does the Bible tell us? They shame this man, and they beat him. So that servant goes... What? Back. Yet, what does he tell us again? Man, that he continues this situation. The man who owns the lands has every right to this fruit. And trying to figure out what he's going to do next, he determines that the best thing for him to do 
is to finally send his son. Because his son would be his heir. His, his son would be like sending himself to this place. And surely these people would respect the owner's son. And an alarming events and twisting of events of what takes place inside of this parable, uh, when the son arrives on the scene, the descendants determine that they are going to throw him outside of the vineyard. And they don't just beat him. They don't just shame him. But the Bible tells us that in Jesus' parable, that they kill him. They kill the man's most beloved son. See, this was, what were they thinking? What are these tenants thinking that's taking place here? Man, if we can get rid of the son, then all of this will be ours. There will be no inheritance to divide up and to give to this most beloved son. And so, man, we're, we're going to kill this man, and then we're going to be able to take all the fruit from it. Look with me in Luke chapter 20, verse 16. It says this, He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So we begin to question, man, Jesus is listening to this, or he's saying this story, and then the, the Pharisees are, man, you know, what's, what's going on here? What, what is the... What's the landowner going to do? They have just killed his son. And what does the Bible tell us there? He says, man, he's going to declare wrath upon them. Like he's going to take care of business upon these people. They are going to pay for what they have done to my son. And not only am I going to kill them, but I'm going to give to someone else this land, this fruit, this vineyard. As we've said each and every week that we've been doing this sermon series that Jesus tells something to reveal in these stories, something about himself, something about the kingdom of God, and something about us. Jesus in this particular parable is going to also talk about something in the past. He's going to reveal something in the present and also talk about the future. Now, if you've grown up in church this probably isn't going to be very difficult to kind of figure out the foreshadowing here of what's taking place. And yet the, the truth of this parable is very, very profound. The first thing that we see is easy to kind of see here or picture is, is God is the landowner. And we're going to come back to this toward the end of the sermon today. But the landowner, he, he represents God. Who is God? God is everything. He's God Almighty. He creates. He created in Genesis. It said that he practically sang creation into existence. That wherever he wanted things to be, that's where they were. He tells us as well there in Genesis that he created a garden. That this place was beautiful. That it was good. This is God's land. This is God's property and everything within it the moon the stars the universe all of these things are created for his glory and for the good of those he places upon it God's most prized possession is male and female and he places them on the planet and from the very beginning we see this image that their responsibility then is to take care and to steward God's creation 
the vineyard. This may be a little bit more difficult for you to interpret here, so that's why I'm here. Uh, the vineyard represents the Jewish people and the privileges that come to them as being God's chosen people. He often calls them throughout Scripture the vineyard. In Psalm 80, 8 through 9, it says this You brought the vine out of Egypt. Who is the vine there? The Jews, right? He delivered them out of the bondage and the slavery of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. Um, it took deep root and filled the land. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Uh, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for your Self. Israel is called the choice vine in Jeremiah 2.21. It's called the luxuriant vine in Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. The prophet Ezekiel lamented that the vine had become withered and, he's, and useless in Ezekiel 15 and in chapter 19. The prophet Joel said um, that it has been stripped bare by the, the enemy nations in Joel 1.7. Probably the most um, point, pointed illustration in the Old Testament of this idea of the Jewish people and the privileges of being a Jewish people in the promised land is found in Isaiah chapter 5. Let me read this to you. It says this, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on the very, very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared out the stones, and he planted it with some choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes... Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you that what I will do to my vineyard, I will remove its hedge. I shall, it shall be devoured and it shall break down its wall. I shall trample it down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they, not rain, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is a house of Israel and the men of Judah as his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, we see this over and over and over again throughout Scripture. We can even see some glimpses of this in the New Testament as well, that we are the, 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 Jesus is the branches, we are the vines, these sorts of imagery that we see inside of Scripture. This, this image for the Jews, though, ladies and gentlemen, is a huge national issue of pride for them. Much like for me, every time the Olympics, especially Summer Olympics, come on, I'm an Olympics junkie. Me and my wife sit up to like 3 o'clock in the morning watching sports that we would never watch throughout the entire rest of the year. But man, there is something about seeing people on that platform with their right hand over their heart and the, the national anthem being played and what? Our flag being lifted above them, right? 
There is some sense, and man, we are, we are a, a proud nation. We, we see that as a symbol of who we are. You know, the, the Kentucky Wildcat fanatics, all right, waving flags outside of their home, driving around town with flags. I mean, couches beware if Kentucky wins the national championship. We love to burn couches for some reason, but there is something about this that, man, this is what we're about. Think of the tattoos that some of you have, dudes, on your lower back, which is really weird, all right? I mean, think about these sorts of things that, man, they, these are our sources of pride. This is a symbol of my life. That's what it was. The idea of the vine and the vineyard for these Jewish people. Where's Jesus standing right now? Inside the temple. You know what's carved inside the temple? Inside of the temple mount during this time, along these walls as Jesus is standing there, there's a, a card, I believe that it was one of the Herods that, that had this put in there, um, but there, going around the inside of it, was a huge carved vine. And everywhere there was a cluster of fruit hanging from that vine, it was the most precious of jewels in its place. This was... A picture of what we're talking about here found in the Old Testament. It was a, a picture that, man, out of all the things in the world, the Jewish people are God's most prized possessions. We are the more, more precious than any of these jewels. We are the people of God. We are the Israelites. So as Jesus is standing here and he's talking about these, and I think this happened quite a bit when Jesus was talking, um, there were actual physical elements taking place close to him as illustrations, much like we would maybe use PowerPoint or a video. Jesus could say, you see, we're the vine. There was a man, a wealthy man. He was God. And he created us, and we are his vine. We are his vineyard, the tenants. Who are the tenants then? If all of the Jewish people represent that, that, that vine and, and that vineyard, then who are the tenants? Well, ladies and gentlemen, whether you like this or not, from the history of histories and into the future, God has always chosen out of the people for there to be leaders. And the way in which they serve is through leadership. Now the tension often, often arises through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and even today, is that people really don't want to be led. Okay, But this is it's not something that I've come up with or that the church in America has come up with. It's something that has always been there since God created humanity. He is called certain people out, not to be dictators, but to serve the people. How do they serve? They serve by leading. Now, the temptation is this, is there have been a lot of bad leaders in all aspects of life. There have been bad business leaders. There, there have been bad fathers, bad mothers, all right? There have been people who have been placed in leadership that have done a rotten job. And ladies and gentlemen, apologetically, there, there have been people who have been called to be pastors who have done a terrible, terrible job of tending to God's flock and tending to God's vineyard. 
I won't mention any names, Creflo Dollar, who asking for $65 bazillion so that he can have a new jet. That is a poor example of a man that is supposed to be serving by giving, all right, and, 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 and serving by leading, and yet he's asking for this exorbitant amount of money, so that he, and so I get it. I get the lack of trust. We see it here. These pastors, these priests who are supposed to be taking care of God's vineyard, guess what they're doing? They're robbing God. They're robbing people. Let me speak to leaders in the room. And, and that could be leader in your home, leader at your job. It, the, the area of leadership is an extremely difficult one. It's the thing that everybody kind of says they want, but nobody really wants it after they do it. All right? It's a very, very difficult position, and yet God is calling us. Man, some of you, man, you, you've been beat up, and you get the, the emails, and you're just wondering, oh my gosh, what's coming this time? You've got employees, right? It's not just the people that are coming into Best Buy, Mr. York, that are mad because, man, STV, it doesn't, you know, jump out and grab me, and I don't have smell-o-vision on it, and I thought it came with this TV. I mean, it's, it's not those people that are typically your problems. It's the people you pay, right? The, the people you pay that are supposed to be a part of this team, that are supposed to be with us, have a tendency to cause the main problems. And what does that do? Sin, Satan, and death begins to twist that as well, and it becomes easier. Man, let's just take advantage of this situation instead of doing what is right. Man, I want to encourage you leaders. Again, whether it's in your home, your, your dorm room, or at your business, Always do things on the up and up. And when you make a mistake, be willing to say, we made a mistake. I made a mistake. I, I'm responsible for this. Okay? And so we see this idea of, of the tenants. They are the Jewish leaders. They're responsible, again, for cultivating the growth. God has put the vineyard in place. He, it's his land. It's his fruit. But we're to cultivate the land. We're to lead these people. And yet the Jewish leaders are doing a terrible, 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 terrible job of this. They were the scribes, the Pharisees who were responsible for the spiritual development of these people, for the care, for the prayer of these people, and they're not doing it. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, what do they want to do? They want to kill him. We see from the story, these tenants and these leaders are just terrible. They're horrific at what is God has called them to do. So we see that God is the landowner. We see that the vineyard is the promised land. It's the blessings. It's the privileges of being the people of Israel. We see the tenants. These are the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. But who are the servants? Ladies and gentlemen, the servants that Jesus is speaking about here, I would suggest to you specifically were the prophets in the Old Testament and then John the Baptist. Remember, we must view God from a perspective of how God reveals Himself as well. 
If you read through the Old Testament, which some of us are doing right now, you will be coming across several men that God calls out of the vine, out of the vineyard, to say, okay, you are my prophets. You are the one that are going to go preach to these people. You are the one that are supposed to go to these people and call them to repentance because they're constantly drifting. They're constantly drifting away from worshiping me. They're constantly drifting more toward their boyfriend or more toward money or more toward their girlfriend. And they're falling in love with all of these local idols instead of worshiping me and me alone. And so what I'm going to do is is I'm going to send some really messed up dudes. And I'm going to send them to those people. And in sending them to those people then he, they are going to call these people to repentance. Sounds like a great plan, right? You that are parents in this room, your kid's acting up, all right? I understand it's become cool just to let them figure it out, all right? That's not good parenting, all right? Now, I understand you got to let some things go, but as, as if we're seeing a child doing something and they're about to hurt themselves and run out in the middle of the road, you don't let them get hit by a Mack truck and hope they make it. Hope you learned your lesson, all right? What do you do? Stop! Don't do that. If, I mean, we say things like, if you keep picking your nose, you're going to bruise your brain. I mean, we, we let them know, hey, what you're doing is not good, all right? You're hurting yourself. We would call that what? Loving. And if you had a kid that was on meth, would you not want to do everything possible to help that child? Isn't that loving? Sounds like a great plan. This is a loving plan. This is God's mercy. It is God's patience it is god's grace in these people's lives you know who get the worst end of the deal on this the prophet the prophets do god sends them into people that should receive this right they're believers they believe in yahweh we pray to him And God sends these men into these people's lives. And as they're committing spiritual suicide, God sends these rag-muffin group of people and says, Hey guys, don't turn to God. Put away these idols. Don't fall more in love with that than you are in love with God. Repent. And what happens? These men are shamed, rejected, persecuted, and killed. No one was signing up. <laughs> Become a prophet. Even reading through the New Test or the Old Testament, I read the other day that man, if you were if you claimed to be a prophet and you said this and this and this was going to happen and it didn't happen, they killed you. All right, they killed you. They took you outside the city and they stoned you to death. You do not declare something to be from God and foreshadowing and foretelling that this and this and this is going to happen and it not happened. It was a huge deal. Now we live in a culture where, man, you can get on YouTube and watch all kinds of people saying that all sorts of stuff's going to happen. These guys who say things like Jesus is going to come back on this day and then he doesn't, if he did, 
I guess that's why these seats are empty. They were raptured or something, and we are deeply deceived. But anyway, um, if, if that doesn't happen on the day that you're saying, Old Testament-wise, you beat them to death. You know why? Because they will never say that again. They won't do it again. This is a big deal. You know, we often say, don't shoot the messenger. All right? You know, as a pastor, um, part of my responsibility is to be that prophetic voice for the people of Mission Church. But man, you start saying things like, you don't need to do that. Or, this is the direction that we are going. And man, you will feel every bit of this. Get ready, Pastor Justin. You'll feel every bit of it. As soon as you say, hey man, you, you probably don't want to do this. How, you ask questions like, man, does this glorify God in what you're about to do? Does this make much of God in what you are about to do? And you know what the most common statement is? Don't judge me. Don't be judging me. The Bible says, judge not, and then they go King James, lest ye be judged. Where is that? I have no idea. But I know that's in there. Don't judge me. Oh, they get tattoos. Only God can judge me. Next year, I'm going to do a sermon series on the most misquoted passages in Scripture. You know what you should never do? Say to someone, you're being judgmental. Quit judging me. Because as, as soon as you do that, do you realize what you just did? You just judged them by calling them judgmental. So you are being the judge. All right? But we're going to go through a series probably next year of, of the most misquoted, misinterpreted one. And man, if you're in leadership, you got to be ready for that. You got to. But if, if my daughter goes something like, you don't need to do that, and she's like, you're judging me. How ridiculous. No, you're loving me. You care enough. While my other friends will allow me to have something stuck in my teeth, while I'm talking, and everyone sees it and says nothing, you love me enough to say, you got something wrong, brother. All right? I hear. Okay? You got something. You, you love me wrong. I'm, I'm about to commit spiritual suicide here, and you love me enough to say, don't do it. Don't jump off that cliff. Repent. Come back. Come back to Jesus. Don't go that direction. Ladies and gentlemen, that is love. Jeremiah 7.25, talking about him, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I've persistently sent my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear. They stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Listen to this, and again, remember who is, who is coming from. Church people, right? Elijah was hated by the queen and had to run for his life, 1 Kings. Jeremiah was laughed at and rejected, then thrown into a pit and left for dead, Jeremiah 38. Zechariah was murdered close to the temple. John the Baptist was beheaded. And these sorts of situations continued even after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. By whom? People who claim to worship the same God that you and I claim to worship. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives this 
unbelievable sermon. And what takes place? Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And you know what they did? They essentially hand the jacket, Stephen's coat, to believe to be Paul. Then Saul, this is pre-conversion, and they kill Stephen, just like they did the prophets of old. Now, the main part of this parable, the main thing that Jesus is getting toward is this, is that Jesus is the landowner's son. Again, remember from the first part of this sermon, when is this taking place? About two days before Jesus would be killed by these same men. In a final attempt to retrieve what is his, the landowner, God, sends his only, I believe it says beloved, doesn't it? Yes. I will send my beloved son. I will send him and he will take back what is rightfully mine and just like the story the son in the story he was rejected and taken outside of the city and murdered by the tenants the leaders of the church they had been preparing for his arrival for thousands of years and yet when jesus shows up they kill him this is a foreshadowing that jesus reveals because he uh, uh, or the vine and the vineyard would be given away to a people who are currently not a part of it And as Jesus continues this story, something appears to click in the Pharisees. What do they reply to him? They say to Jesus, surely not. Now in the Greek, um, this idea of surely not right there is I think considered to be the most negative, like forceful way of saying no. So essentially it would read like this. They hear this and Jesus says, here's the deal. The wrath is going to come from the landowner on all these tenants. And then what is he going to do? He's going to give the vineyard to someone else. Something snaps inside of those Pharisees and they begin to realize, maybe for the first time, oh, this dude has been talking about us. And they say this, surely not, translated in the Greek is, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Get the drift. They're emphatically pleading, no, surely not. This is not going to take place. What you're saying is not true. He would not remove this from us. And yet, being believers on this side of the cross and resurrection, what do we know happens? See, that they didn't know. It was true. In the matter of a few hours, they would put together a mockery trial of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They would beat him. They would eventually crucify him and and trick the Romans in this situation. 
Jesus goes on to quote there Psalm 118, and he says, you know, this is the stone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. This idea of the stone that the builders rejected that is talked about in Psalm 118 and now here in Luke chapter 20 is believed to be that when Solomon was rebuilding the city, and this is always interesting if you watch Discovery Channel, if you're a geek like me and you watch those shows, and they talk about how these massive buildings were built a long time ago. I mean, you didn't go out here to, you know, Scott Way, or Scotty's out here to the rock quarry and go, man, I need a 10-ton boulder cut to this, Right? I mean, these are men, probably women in some cases, that are chiseling away out of massive stones these huge rocks and then moving them to Jerusalem. And how important, if you ever dug a foundation or laid a foundation, how important, Lego, um, whatever you have done to build, how important is that base stone? Extremely important. Just ask the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? If it's not built on a firm foundation, if it's built in a swampland, you've got to have it dug down deep. There must be a firm foundation that all of this is built on. And the idea is, I think it's a story in Kings. I'm not exactly for sure, so don't hold it against me. I apologize if not. But historically, what I've found out from the commentators is that they were, while they were doing this, they had some big, huge, massive foundation stones made and built. And once they got them to Jerusalem, there was one of them, them that was not right and so they set it aside and they built it and then they quickly realized the one that we set aside was actually the right stone it was the perfect stone and we set it aside and built this so what is Jesus saying? I, I am the stone that the builders have rejected. Ladies and gentlemen, college students, married people, single people, old, young, at the sound of my voice this morning, let me get you to get, you've got to get this. If you have built your life on anything other than the person and work of Jesus, you're in a mess. You'll be greatly disappointed with that God that you're building whether that's upon yourself or upon someone else or a person, place, or possession. If you're building your existence on anything other than the person and work of Jesus, one day, either in this life or the life that is to come, you will quickly realize and be crushed by it. Either Jesus will be your life or he will be your death. Either you will be built upon Jesus and he will be your foundation or he will rest on top of you as your tombstone. To me, what I think Jesus is ultimately trying to get here is he is trying to remove something great about our God. What we all struggle with, ladies and gentlemen, since Genesis, since the fall, as we have all been drifting away from this idea, and I catch myself daily, drifting away from the idea that God is God. And, and trying to put into that place that I am. We want to be God. 
And yet, what does God reveal in this story? What does God do for thousands of years? See, ladies and gentlemen, perspective changes everything. Look how patient our God is. Look how patient God is with us. For thousands of years, even pre-Jesus, what did He do? Even at the cost of costing them their lives, He has sent people, sent people, He has sent people for thousands of years to the Jewish people, now to us Gentiles as well. He continues patiently, patiently sending men and now women involved in the missional efforts of the mission of God to go ye therefore and make disciples to love God and to love your neighbors to be about the glory of God and the good of the people and the good of the city is constantly in his patience and love God isn't out just to squash us I'm telling you today the reason that you are not dead as you deserve to be uh, dead even non-believers Believers in this place is that God is graciously and patient with us. What does he say in, in Peter? That he's long-suffering, that he's patient at his return, that he desires that none of his own would perish. He is patient and not coming back. See, the thing is, we deserve every bit of that wrath. We deserve every bit of that death. We are the wicked tenants. We are the sinners. We want control. And ladies and gentlemen, do not ever forget and remove your hand, your hand that was on the very hammer that has nailed Jesus to the cross. Were they involved? Yes. But so were we. He is patient. He is kind. And none of us have suffered in comparison to the suffering that God has endured Himself. I'm telling you, if I was the landowner and I sent my servant and you beat him to death, I'm the kind of landowner that comes back then and gives you what you deserve. But this is not our God. This is not our God. He sends servants for thousands of years and then He sends His greatest representative. He sends Himself. And we kill Him. And yet, we claim God is this murderous. That God is an abusive God. That God is out to get us. That God is out to punish us. God is out to destroy us. And yet, this is not the perspective of God from Scripture. The perspective of God from Scripture is come back. Come back. Come back. I told Ava this morning, we've been having some, she's doing, she's a great girl in so many ways. Um, but I, I think if I could dive into Ava's mind right now, she'd probably say, man, my daddy's really hard on me. My daddy has great expectations out of me. And even this morning in this hallway, I was walking into the here, and I was, um, she felt guilty, so she gave me a hug. And 
I said, Ava, one day you are going to realize how much your daddy loves you. One day you're going to realize all that I've ever tried to do and I've made lots of mistakes even in this is the realization that man, my daddy loves me. And one day you will. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, when God sets all of this anew and gives us perfect perspective, perfect sight, perfect hearing, we too will realize, even in the midst of great pain and suffering, how much our daddy loves us. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, myself, Pastor Justin, some of our church leaders would love to talk to you about that. If you've not been baptized, our heartbeat is to have a baptismal service here on Resurrection Sunday. If you're a believer and you've never been baptized, then man, we would love to sit down and talk with you about that. If you're a believer who is seeing yourself drift toward being a terrible tenant, then the grace of God extends to you today and He calls you through this broken vessel, through this screwed up guy, your pastor, come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You, God, for this day and for this opportunity, Lord. We pray for the worshipers who have gathered here in this place, Jesus. And we ask You, Jesus, that if there's a person here today that does not have a relationship with you, God, that you would save them.